York City's identity as a cultural center is drastically changing. That's according to the founder and executive artistic director of Three-Legged Dog Media and Theater Group, Kevin Cunningham. Hi, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. Cunningham has served as a linchpin of Lower Manhattan's art scene for more than 20 years. His company, Three-Legged Dog, has collaborated with Lady Gaga, produced work for Anna Wintour's Met Gala, and had three installations in the Next Frontier section at this year's Sundance Film Festival. In the midst of Three-Legged Dog's enormous successes, Cunningham says he's relocating and recalibrating the company to adapt to the changing climate of the New York City art scene. The company is moving from 80 Greenwich Street in Lower Manhattan to a space located at 33 Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. Cunningham plans to establish a new virtual studio model as he continues to produce large-scale immersive projects for clients all around the world. Kevin Cunningham, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. So after 22 years in Lower Manhattan, your media and theater group called Three-Legged Dog is on the move. You're actually moving to Brooklyn. Yeah, it looks like it. Mm-hmm. What yeah. inspired that? It's a, sort of a complex situation. Uh, we have been um, at uh, 80 Greenwich Street in a 12,000-square-foot uh, space for since uh, right after 9-11. And um, we've had a pretty constant struggle up and down to meet the very expense, uh, high expenses of a space like that. Uh, in Lower Manhattan, our, our landlord, DMTA, um, uh, has been working with us, but it's been a fraught uh, sort of relationship for a long time. So your landlord is the MTA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in, for over the last five years, we have uh, been doing a lot more work in international spaces in China and Europe. And we've been working really hard to develop a, a comprehensive digital production method that's been very successful, actually. And so um, in, over the last year, we've had some issues with contracts. Uh, we've been mostly funding our work since the last recession with uh, earned revenue from large-scale contracts with uh, everybody from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where we designed uh, the gala exhibit in 2016, to Vogue China's annual event. Um, but that kind of work, like uh, grant funding, comes and goes. <laughs> uh, but the expenses stay the same. So we 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 just looked at what what had been happening, and we decided um, at this point that it was time for us to move to a different model. Um, for the Vogue China event, for example, we talked to Angelica Chung um, uh, via WeChat uh, with a group uh, conference and came up with a really great idea for a fifty thousand square foot immersive media design, a huge curved screen uh, wrapping the space. And then a big V-shaped, 150 foot wide by 16 foot tall screen that lifted up in the air and revealed the curved uh, space. So we thought, "Wow, this is a great idea. When do you want us to do it?" Yeah. And she said, "In four weeks." Huh. <laughs> Get to work. <laughs> yeah. And the team was in uh, Beijing, and Berlin, and New York. Um, nonetheless, uh, with the help of uh, our partners in Berlin, House of North, we were able to complete that design um, to a very high standard, and also maintain a really high level of creative decision-making all the way through the process with about three days that went uh, to 12 hours or, or above, which was amazing in four weeks. So that that showed us that there was another way to do things. So you don't necessarily need to rely on the physical space that you have to get your work done is what you're saying. Right. Not at all. Um, what we do is we develop a three-dimensional 
uh, CAD drawing, um, you know, a traditional architectural drawing of the space. It can even include the tiniest little nut and bolt. And then we port that out to a 3D modeling software like Cinema 4D. And that way we can we can create a model that has even people. And we can, for example, time uh, walks for models on the runway if we want to with animated figures. Um, every element can be uh, determined digitally. So basically we make all our mistakes in the computer instead of on deck when, when, when it, it bleeds money when we make mistakes. So... You know, with that in mind, and, and then we just got back from a really great uh, 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 showing at Sundance, at the Sundance uh, 2019 Festival. We had a venue. We brought uh, our immersive stage, which is a project we've been working on for the last two years. Basically, it's a it's a big um, immersive space uh, with floor and two walls uh, that you can go inside of and experience many, many different uh, kinds of work. Um, we've had about 45 artists work on the, in, on the immersive stage uh, over the last 18 to 20 months. And we brought three works to Sundance. We brought Peter Burr's Dirt Scraper, which is a long-form narrative piece that um, can either be experienced in uh, with VR glasses or in an immersive space like the one we built. We brought um, Victor Morales' Esperpento, which is actually a, a stage play written in the gaming engine Unreal Engine with live performers interacting with gaming engine figures in a, in a huge world that Victor created. Another piece called Analmosh by Ma- Matt Romine, uh, which is a, a piece that generates itself, uh, which he created so that he would be constantly surprised and be able to collaborate with his code in performance. So... Um, that was a really um, great experience going to Sundance with that, of course. And what I realized while I was at Sundance, uh, a lot of interest in the project, a lot of people came to talk to us, is that the next step for us, it just confirmed, is to move our work mostly to Europe and China. Mm-hmm. There'll be also work that we're doing here in the United States. So you'll have a physical space in Brooklyn? We will, yeah. Well, it looks like we're going to be taking over a 4,300-square-foot space um, near BAM. But it'll be set up um, more like a traditional design studio or architect studio. You know, we'll have it'll be flexible like all the all the spaces we have. Where the you know this is true at uh, at the uh, at eighty Greenwich Street too. The space reconfigures itself for the project, right? So we're still and the other thing that's the other thing we realize is we're really a project based company. No matter how we we uh, do it or how consistently we make, you know, we did. 10 productions a year on average when we were at 80 Greenwich Street. So You even did a project for Lady Gaga. Yes, we did. Yeah, we helped her launch a book uh, that she had at the New Museum. Yeah, yeah. So for those unfamiliar with Three-Legged Dog and its history, why don't you give us that background? How did it come to be in the first place? Well, I was working for Richard Foreman at the Ontological Theater. Um, I was his in-house technical director and designer, and he saw a script that I had written and offered me eight weeks um, in the summer. Uh, there at the at the incubator, which is another a space that doesn't exist anymore. Um, there are a lot of those, um, and uh, I pulled together a, a, a group um, of f- mostly from my crew and from people that I worked with. Um, you know, I started out as the Blue Man Group stage manager, and I was a freelance uh, st- stage uh, production manager and stage designer for a long time. And um, the people I worked with were working people who paid for their art habit by helping other people make their work, Mm. right? And so 
everybody in the crew had a big favor bank due to them. <laughs> and so we were able to do a piece called House of Bugs, a biological tragedy with eight channels of video and and um, even video that had uh, that carried dialogue and interacted with live performers. And, and do a piece that looked like it cost us $90,000 for about $15,000 mm-hmm. or so. Um, and uh, it just, it was a very uh, creatively satisfying experience, and we decided pretty quickly to go ahead and form a company. At that same time, other companies were forming out of the ontological theater, Radio Hole, Elevator Repair Service, Target Margin. You know, they're, they're, they're still working, all those companies, and they've done some really amazing work. It was a really fruitful time. And what year was that, that Three-Legged Dog actually originated? 19, well, we incorporated in 98, but we did our first full production in 1996. Always in Lower Manhattan from the beginning? Well, we were in East Village, yeah, at the Ontological Theater, yes. Mm-hmm. In Lower, below 14th Street, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you were at Fitterman Hall? Right, so in, I, it, also in 96, we were asked to help put together the Governor's Conference in Art and Technology, Another thing that isn't going to happen again. Uh, and uh, um, while we were doing that project, I saw that the video and audio algorithms were getting a lot more efficient. And the Macintosh G3s had come out, and they were really fast. Um, they don't seem so fast anymore, but they were fast enough. <laughs> and so I got it um, in my head that we might be able to create a kind of software that would allow us to control all the different elements of a multimedia production from a single interface in a way that was affordable for your everyday average Joe or Jill artist. And so we started a software company and our main investor was Henry Kravitz uh, on the New York City Investment Fund uh, and a group of, uh, of uh, European social venture capital folks and the Rockefeller Foundation. And we grew to um, 32 employees and um, uh, raised $7.8 million in venture capital. And the product was ready. Uh, it, was, it was actually running the, the booths uh, for Sony and NEC at Infocom. And there were partnerships uh, coming in. Another tranche of investment was due to come in, and then we were destroyed on 9-11. So. Fitterman Hall is located at the Borough of Manhattan Community College. That's right, yeah. It was it basically... World Trade Center 7 fell on the building and scraped off the south 15 floors, and it became sort of the rim of the crater there. Were you and your coworkers there that We day? were in um, production on a, on a piece called Campuchia Loisida and also in a development cycle for the software, so everybody was working till 4 o'clock in the morning and coming in late. So there were only two people in the building, and they both got out, two people in our offices at the time, yeah. What was it like when you were able to get back to the site? Well... My office, um, the floor was cut away like a jigsaw puzzle that had fallen apart, and it just opened up straight onto the pit. Mm. And um, I looked out, and the pit at that time was was bristling with what looked like hair, you know, from that distance. But they were I-beams, um, thousands and thousands of I-beams. And I, I remember there was one guy down there with, with a, a little pincher grapple picking up I-beams one at a time and moving them over and stacking them. And I, I just remember thinking that he should never have to work another day in his mm. life. Um, and everything was covered in a layer uh, of about an inch and a half of pure white dust. It had been like, you know, nothing had changed except this. It was something like something out of the Twilight Zone. 
But you made the decision to stay in Lower Manhattan. We you made reopened that, nearby. Yeah, we made that decision that afternoon, actually. The that afternoon, afternoon. September 11th, yeah. The source code for this software was in um, a vault in the World Trade Center. It was in our our office, which we didn't have access to for four months. And um, our project manager had spirited a copy away into her underwear drawer in Brooklyn. <laughs> so, so we started. Um, we started. Uh, w- the company was called Wet Electrics. Wet Electrics East. Um, the afternoon of September 11th, and I called everybody together to my house, and we all decided that the best response was uh, to keep doing exactly what we were doing as much as possible. Um, and that decision, uh, I think, was one of the best decisions I've ever made and also one of the most difficult uh, in terms of consequences. Yeah. And then several years later, you would be impacted by another disaster, this one, Superstorm Sandy. Right, yes. Well, before Superstorm Sandy came, the recession of 2008 and nine, yeah. Um, which uh, decimated our our, uh, our um, giving program. Basically, most of our foundation support disappeared uh, at that point, um, and that was also why we um, we our first sort of struggle with the MTA happened uh, when we lost that funding and fell behind in the rent, and it got in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, um, who'd been watching us. Um, and I got a call from Oscar Eustace um, and another call from Harold Coda from the Metropolitan Museum of Art that same day. You know, the, the article came out saying, you know, we hear you're having trouble. We don't have any money, but we have these big multimedia nightmares we need somebody to have for us. <laughs> so we ended up um, designing uh, one of the main galleries in, in the Met Gala exhibit, American Woman, in 2010. And with Oscar, we worked with uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning author Lawrence Wright on a piece called The Human Scale, which was really one of the most satisfying projects we've uh, worked on in a long time. And that helped to keep you afloat. It did, yeah. It brought in altogether around $600,000 in over over three months and helped us uh, reset ourselves. And it also, everybody was at the Met Gala, and we started getting calls from people with really interesting projects uh, who wanted to pay us to help them uh, put their projects up. And so we... Went to um, Darren Walker, who at the time, uh, he now runs the Ford Foundation, at the time was at the Rockefeller Foundation. They had a program called the Cultural Innovation Fund, and they made a grant to help us structure up that, uh, that uh, what we call a balanced revenue model. And the idea was we had um, high margin earned revenue possible. Most nonprofits do bookstores or cafes, which most business people think of as a way to lose money to write off, you know, business losses on your taxes. Um, we have a uh, the ability to work in a, in a market that has a good, healthy margins, and that money goes back into the art. And so um, uh, the idea was for – we thought we could provide at least 50% of all the funding we needed, and then we were going to work with foundations to try to see if we could uh, come up with a 50-50 deal, basically. It never really worked out because of the recession. What is foundation support like these days? It's difficult. Um, a lot of the foundations have devolved their arts funding um, into what I call feeder foundations, secondary foundations like the Rockefeller Map Fund or Creative Capital, um, which decreases the overall funding available. Um, it's also a lot of it's focused on individual artists, so small to mid-sized institutions 
or organizations um, have difficulty uh, raising money. Um, here in Manhattan, by some counts, or in Manhattan, by some counts, we've lost 90 small to mid-sized theaters since 2010. Um, nobody really wants to talk about it for some reason, but um, that's about 47% of the theaters in Manhattan. Uh, and we've also lost theaters in other boroughs, too. Um, but like small businesses, um, nobody really counts them. They're considered fungible, so... That being said, then where is the artist community going if these theaters are closing? Where is the community going to put on their shows, to put on their performances? I don't know. Most most of it will happen in the Bronx. We're going to be moving mostly to Europe and Asia, right? So we'll do some work probably here in the United States. Um, the kind of work we do is larger scale and complex, and it requires we're – really, we're really good at doing it inexpensively, but it still costs money. And so the only kinds of venues that we really have immediate access to exist in universities mostly, right, here in the States. In Europe, there's a long tradition of artistic support, and art, artists and art are thought of in a very different way than they are here. And so there's a, there's a system there that we can tap into that will help us continue our art and, 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 uh, and work at a high level. And then in China, um, there's a very strong interest in it, I think, a very um, sophisticated understanding of the relationship between artistic development and technological innovation and development. Um, they understand that a lot of the, ma- the major technological innovations in digital um, expression and communication have been driven by artists who uh, have uh, access to those, um, those tools. Um, and here, here in the States also we're working with uh, Nokia Bell Labs Experiments in Art and Technology Program, which has been revived, uh, the famous program that Merce Cunningham and, and Robert Rauschenberg and John Cage collaborated um, within back in the 60s. Um, and that's, that's a really interesting um, possibility also. With you closing up shop in Lower Manhattan, are artists losing a venue? Didn't you rent out space yes. at your facility? We rented out space. We did full productions. We, you know, we produced work. Um, yeah, I mean, we, like I said, we we did about ten productions a year, which is a lot. And in the last, I don't know, five years, we've uh, received four Drama Desk nominations and a Pulitzer Prize for the work we've done. And of course, the, the Sundance selected three works this year, which is unusual. The reality is, is that we couldn't really charge an artist enough. To, to make our net there at at, at 80 Greenwich Street, um, you know our a- average monthly expenses range between 80 and 120 thousand dollars, without the production expenses a month. So that's a lot. And if you don't have um, major institutional support, it's not really viable. It can't continue. So we were able to do it for you know we started our first production in 2006 so we had uh you know 12 solid years of production with about 145 productions um in there and multiple awards every year so that part works what we need to find now is a way to work internationally there's an argument that new york is no longer the center of culture that it's been for a long time there really isn't a frame here in the United States anymore for art as an important uh, human activity in itself, um, which is what we still have in Europe and Asia. So it, it's a 
it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky question it's a difficult a difficult time for artists in the United States. What project would you say you're proudest of? Oh, that's hard. That's a hard one. I mean, there are three or four of them. Um, I really, personally, my own projects, Fire Island, uh, the the piece I did with Chuck Mee in 2007 is probably my favorite project. And describe that for us. So this is a large-scale immersive work. Uh, Chuck Mee is a playwright. He's a distinguished professor of playwriting at Columbia University. He's famous for bringing the technique of collage into theater making. And so he sends me... 10 or 13 scripts and I take them and I chop them up and I reassemble them into another work. This piece, we went out to Cherry Grove, Fire Island with 72, a cast and crew of 72 um, and 16 psychedelic drag queens. And we shot this whole piece from act one, scene one to the end with five to seven cameras simultaneously. Then we took that footage um, into studio A at 3LD we created a surround video environment where there was video all around and also video washing the audience on the floor, about 27 projectors that were all coordinated into a big map that mapped the whole room. And people came in and sat on beach chairs and beach blankets with buckets of beer and wine. And the seven different points of view that we had shot were blended and woven around the audience. In terms of work we produced, um, I, I, I mentioned uh, Human Scale, which was really um, a, a blunt look and in a, in a, in a, in an attempt to look at the situation in Gaza with an even-handed but personal viewpoint. And so every night, somebody would get up cursing and throw a chair across the room and stalk out of the theater. And it was a complete crapshoot, whether it was a Palestinian sympathizer or an Israeli sympathizer. And um, the piece went to Israel and uh, and went to the Kamari Theater and won the Israel Prize that year. So that was a really satisfying uh, collaboration. And uh, we've done full evening dances for Human and Robot, which was a a young Taiwanese artist named Wang Yi, who's a really brilliant um, digital artist and and just as brilliant a choreographer and dancer. Um, And... We did a piece called Z by Kurt Henschlager where you walk into a 50 by 100 foot um, enclosed room that's full of fog so you can only see a half inch in front of your eye and these giant strobes start pulsing and you begin to hallucinate wildly. Hmm. And my only regret about that is I I can't document it. There's no way I can show Ah. (laughs) (laughs) it. It all happens in your head. How different is what you're doing with large-scale multimedia performance today compared to what you were doing when you first started? I mean, the the first piece I ever did had still images, slide images in it. The first, uh, I worked, I, I studied with Edward Albee at the University of Houston. And, but uh, the, f- the first work we did at the Ontological Theater, I was talking about earlier, House of Bugs, had eight channels of video. Four of those channels carried dialogue. So there was a, a three-part dialogue between a live performer and two different versions of themselves on a television. And then the other four channels also incorporated cued media that that was critical for the for the uh for the scene to move forward and we also had spinning robotic speakers but in that show we basically had a 16 channel push button switcher matrix a mix of borrowed vhs three-quarter inch uh uh, decks uh, you know 
tape decks and a really fast guy named Kitty uh, with with very fast fingers, kind of <laughs> grumpy, <laughs> who, you know, hit his cues. But one night, the uh, one of the cues in the early part of the show, the tape stretched and the cue drifted off by about 11 seconds and that butterflied to the point where by the end of the show, the whole sequence of uh, tech sequence was off by almost five minutes and fortunately I had Stephen Rattazzi uh, who's the lead actor who was very um, good at improvising <laughs> and also it was an experimental work so we were the only ones that really noticed but uh, you know so it was very it's very different and now the technology comes to the performer you don't really have to um, uh, do the kind of intensive repetitive technical process that we used to have to do we used to put the artists through video boot camp where we would we would ha- you know create screw ups in the video sequencing and the issue with video of course is that if it screws up on stage it's all over the stage yeah. right it's not like sound or lights where you can sort of fudge it and nobody will notice and uh and make them you know, figure out how to deal with the with the problem, but we don't have to worry about that anymore. Now we can do really complex um, uh, pieces like Fire Island, or um, we did a piece called Losing Something. It was another one of my pieces. It was the first fully holographic um, stage production in the United States. There was one live performer and about eight other performers in a whole set that was all holographic projection. What's the story behind the name Three Legged Dog? Oh. <laughs> Um, so 80 Greenwich Street's maybe the fifth industrial space I've taken over in my life um, to turn into an arts space. And the first one was a place called Commerce Street Artist Warehouse, which is still existent in, in existence in Houston, Texas. It was a 27,000-square-foot former bomb factory that had been abandoned for many years. And we went in with uh, power washers to clean away all the dust and found a little pit bull puppy in the corner had uh, been abandoned, uh, and we named him Sid, and he became the mascot for uh, the art and tech, uh, the uh, uh, Commerce Street warehouse. Um, and Sid would sit on the loading dock and chase cars, and he would run up beside the front sidewall and try to bite the car tire, and so he lost his left front leg. Um, so we took him to the vet and bandaged him up and everything. And he's sitting on the loading dock with his bandage on. And here comes a car and off he goes. But now the leg isn't in the way. So he can actually get sort of a chomp on the sidewall, you know, bump, chomp and roll off, you know. Um, and he just became a symbol of the artistic life, persistence of vision in the face of adversity, you know. And so that's where the name comes from, from Sid. And that's basically been your story all throughout <laughs> your history, hasn't it? <laughs> for better or worse, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Art is not easy So for anybody, you know. So it's a difficult path. I yeah. always tell my students, if there's anything else you're passionate about, go do that. Mm. Do you believe <laughs> that really, though? I do. You I do. do? Yeah. But, I mean, if you are passionate about it, if it's what you if there's if there's that drive i always i have a sort of a tip of the mind phenomenon that i suffer from right where i there's something that's just teasing me that has to get out um you know you, your life can be very satisfying but it it isn't it isn't going to be easy richard foreman always would talk to his uh his um he he had these observer interns that a whole group of them every year an army of them 
And he would always say, if you're here to learn how to make money, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> We're making art. So, yeah. All right, Kevin, anything we didn't talk about that you'd want to add? Just that even though, um, you know, I've been working at uh, 3LD and at the Art and Technology Center, you know, since 2005, and uh, it was an amazing place and uh, a, a difficult uh, journey through, um, I actually am feeling very, very positive about the, the path we're on now. Um, Sundance, the, the experience at Sundance really clarified, uh, for me, what our value is, uh, to other people. And, and what people are asking us to do is make more art. And so that's, that's good because that's exactly what we want to do. Kevin, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. That was Kevin Cunningham, the founder and executive director of Three-Legged Dog Media and Theater Group. For more information on Three-Legged Dog and their work, visit 3ldnyc.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Fiona Shea. And thank you so much for listening. Listening.